And together with uh, Caroline, who is sitting there in space, uh, we're going to be presenting on some of the preliminary results of the project that Stanley has just walked you through. Um, so I'll just open the talk with a little bit of context and methods, then I'll pass over to Caroline for discussion of the sample characteristics, some of our key findings, and then we'll move into looking at some of the changes over time and, uh, you know, asking the inevitable question of, of what's next. Um, but by means of opening, I'd just like to draw your attention to the photo on the screen here. Um, and I took this last week at my local big Tesco or Tesco Extra. Um, I live in Cardiff and Wales has been under a national firebreak lockdown for almost two weeks now. So part of this is all non-essential businesses have been told to shut and larger stores like, like Tesco um, are not able to sell non-essential goods now. So if you can't see the text that's at the bottom of the picture on the blue sign there, it, uh, it does read, in line with Welsh government guidelines, we are unable to sell items deemed non-essential at this time. Um, and then what may also be difficult to see in the photo is that the section of the store which is being blocked off by these pallets of Coca-Cola um, is in fact the cookware section. So pots, pans, oven trays, spatulas, you name it, it has been deemed non-essential at this time and has been physically blocked off from shoppers. So I just wanted to flag this idea of what we deem essential and non-essential as we move throughout this workshop, um, because I think it's a theme that we're going to see across some of the presentations, and it's something we found as an undercurrent in our work. So we need to start asking what foods are essential, how much space is essential for living well in lockdown, what amount of physical activity is essential? And how is this question of essential or non-essential determined by policy and also acted upon by citizens? So with that in mind, uh, why don't we hop on over to the next slide, which is everybody's favorite section, methods. Maybe. I am attempting to do so. Oh no. <laughs> I don't know if I've got too many things going on, so I may have to go to the less pretty view. That's all right. Okay, sorry about that, guys. Let me just stop the sharing and see if we can't get back on there with something we can see. I know everyone's on their edge of their seat about methods. <laughs> okay. All right, all right. Can you see that? Yeah. And are we on the right slide? Yes, we are. Great. Right. So um, as Stanley mentioned, this project began at the end of another one on materialities of disordered eating in the home. Um, so we were fortunate enough to have a great project team in place when everything really kicked off with COVID this past spring. Um, so together, um, we were able to execute the following, which was an electronic survey, which we rolled out between June 19th and the 31st of July. And the questions therein focused on mental health, eating, and physical activity, both before and during England's national lockdown, which began in late March. And our sample was adults 18 and over who lived in England during lockdown. And I know I've just given you my Tesco example from Wales, um, and we have some colleagues from Northern Ireland here as well. But when we were designing the survey, we decided to focus on England only in order to control for the differences in public health messaging and regulations between some of the devolved administrations. So um, I think we did say UK earlier, but our sample is only from England. 
Um, and then respondents who provided a contact email to receive a second shorter follow-up survey were contacted about a month later with the second survey um, and Caroline administered that and it ran from the 23rd of July to September 14th. And so one of the things with our methods is, as with everybody, we've all had to adapt research practices during the pandemic, and this obviously impacted our recruitment methods. So this was entirely online only, um, which for, you know, anthropologists who were not necessarily digital anthropologists going into this was a bit of a, oh, wow, uh, what do we do? But I think we, we did uh, as well as we could. So the survey link thus was advertised on our own pages. So that's the, you know, the unit for biocultural variation and obesity, the individual researchers and in our social networks, the anthropology department, the social science division at the University of Oxford, sent around through all of our professional networks, hosted on a number of sites which uh, collated links to active research projects on coronavirus and uh, called for volunteers and then also distributed on Reddit threads for different regional communities throughout England. And so this, in the end, gave us really excellent geographic reach and spread. And um, although given, I think, particularly our professional networks, and, and Caroline will get into this shortly, uh, there is a bit of a concentration in the south and southeast of England, but there were also some obvious limitations. Um, so because this was based wholly online, uh, the sample is, is potentially biased to those groups who are more digitally engaged or who work in professions already, which require a great deal of digital literacy. But um, I think now it's time for me to hand over to Caroline to get a little bit more in depth into what these participant profiles looked like and where we can see some of these strengths and limitations at play. Thank you. So let's see if there we go. Has that has the slide changed for you all? Great. Okay. Um, yeah, so we saw some of those uh, limitations play out, um, you know, in the demographics for the sample, and we were we were hoping to achieve, you know, kind of minimum a thousand um, respondents just for range, good geographic coverage, that sort of thing. So we were pleased that we did manage to reach that target, um, but as we were watching the um, the results come in, we were very aware of trying to kind of keep tabs on if we were getting any, you know, very obvious sort of dem demographic biases, and we noted not unexpectedly right away that we were really, um, you know, getting a lot more of the responses from not only working age people, but the younger end of working age. Um, and so you do see that, um, that. So this is to say that, you know, this is certainly not a nationally representative sample, because in particular, we don't have much representation um, from 65 and older, although we do have some. Um, ethnicity, very, you know, strongly white British or white other, um, not terribly out of line with sort of national percentages, um, but we didn't have as much um, representation from um, non-white groups as we would have liked, um, so that is a limitation. We were also very skewed towards a lot more women taking part, and we saw this um, only increase actually with the follow-up in terms of um, uh, who was willing to engage with us twice, so it is a heavily female sample. Um, but as Sabine mentioned, particularly with some of those targeted regional communities on Reddit, we were able to get good geographic coverage, and this was really interesting for us um, because at the time, um, you know, we were starting to see some of the first localized outbreaks in the summer, um, particularly around areas like Leicester. And so being able to catch those different communities that might have been experiencing, you know, the first kind of resurgence after some um, reduction in cases and deaths, um, we were able to, you know, capture respondents from those regions, which was great to see. Um, down here, we had a number of um, 
demographic proxies that we were trying to kind of get at in terms of um, social position. And so we asked things like um, what people's professions, profession categories were, um, house type, whether they rented or owned their accommodation. Um, this question on economic security has been one that has correlated very strongly with a lot of our um, results. And so um, it captures a lot of the, the other demographic indicators on this. So this is just to point out that we had a relatively very secure um, sample in terms of economic security, and that was reflected in that the vast majority of our participants were um, salaried employees or, um, to a lesser extent, either self-employed or business owners. So we had a relatively small proportion of the sample that were saying they were either unemployed but seeking work or on long-term unemployment or sick leave. Um, so this is the message that we communicated in our insight reports. The results um, are biased towards both younger but also more economically secure people and so our interpretation so far has been you know potentially the trends that we see here are possibly just tip of the iceberg of what we might see across um, a general British population. So to walk you through some of the key results um, that we've highlighted in the insight reports, um, one thing that came out very clearly um, right away was the impact on mental health. And we asked that in a couple of different ways. Um, we administered the um, Warwick and Edinburgh Mental Wellbeing Scale, the short form version, which is seven questions. And um, so we wanted some kind of um, measurable outcome measure that had um, some comparative data. And so this measure has been used in national samples such as the Health Survey for England. So here on the left, um, the gray bar is um, the mean score from the Health Survey for England sample in 2011. So the score ranges between 7 and 35 with higher scores, meaning better well-being. So your mean score for that sample was around 23 and a half. And what we saw was that our, our scores were lower than that across the board. But we did have a look at how those varied um, along the lines of economic security. And we saw a very clear trend of decreased mental well-being scores, um, the more economically insecure someone reported being. Um, so that's something we, we saw that trend right the way across as well as in the follow-up survey a month later. We also asked people about specific experiences of different mental health concerns. So those are here in um, the right-hand graph. So we asked them about sleeping, anxiety, persistent sadness, um, and right the way down to uh, drug use, self-harm, and thoughts of suicide. And the, the different bars that you're looking at here, so the, the bright red bar is the percentage of people that reported experiencing that um, at the first survey time point. So they said they had experienced that condition at some point between lockdown and the point where they took the first survey. And we also asked about people's prior experience with those mental health conditions. And so the, the the lighter pink bar next to it is the proportion of people that had said that that condition happened for them sometimes or often before lockdown. So we wanted to see if what people were reporting was just a continuation of concerns that were already there or if they were changing in any way. Um, and we asked if, if it, it was um, had experienced sometimes or often, rarely or never. And so what we were looking at in this first comparison um, was you know, the people who we're reporting it as a potentially regular experience in the first place, where we're seeing, you know, basically that sort of proportion of, purport, of reporting or something higher. And across all of the conditions we asked about, we had higher proportions of people reporting having experienced that condition during the lockdown in comparison to the people who said that 
it was a somewhat regular experience before. And so a cautious interpretation of this that Sabine will come back to in looking at some of the qualitative comments is that um, we're interpreting this as lockdown basically exacerbated um, existing conditions. And so some people talked about, you know, things that were relatively well controlled, but that were kicked off again because of the changed circumstances in lockdown. And going back to the differences along economic insecurity, again, with the caveat that we had a relatively secure sample, we looked at some of the other things that we asked about and compared it um, along the lines of economic uh, security. And so here we see cautious trends in each of these um, different metrics that we considered. Um, so one was the proportion of people who reported any of those um, mental health conditions in the previous slide. Um, we also looked at um, what proportion of each group was below that sort of average um, mental health, mental well-being score that was reported in the health survey for England. We asked people about how their physical activity levels had changed. So we used decreased physical activity as potentially a negative outcome. And we also asked a general health question to, we asked people to rate, rate their health prior to the lockdown and now and looked for changes in those ratings. And so again, these are, um, suggestive that basically across the board, acknowledging that the groups that we had in these stretched or insecure groups were relatively smaller in the sample, but um, that we were seeing trends in all of the negative outcomes along the lines of increased economic insecurity. So that really seems to be one of the key underlying drivers of differences we're seeing within our sample. But we also noted that um, younger people, particularly on the well-being metrics, um, were reporting notably lower scores um, and also higher proportions of some of the reported mental health conditions. And so we, we wanted to try and untangle a little bit, you know, how much of this is young people who are just less economically secure. So we did um, split those out according to economic security and we still found this age trend irrespective of economic security level. So across the board, um, and again, this this chart is the um, the well-being score, the, the Warwick inverse scale. Uh, but we were seeing lower reported mental well-being for younger groups across the board, irrespective of, of which economically secure group they were in. We collected quite a bit of um, data on what types of activities that people were doing um, during the lockdown. And we asked in the first survey about three different time points. So the first two would be retrospective, what, we, what were your activity levels like before lockdown? What were they like in the early phases of lockdown? So between March and May, when the first, uh, you know, the real wave and uh, the sort of shock of lockdown was hitting. And then we were asking at the current time point, which was June or July for when people were taking the survey. Um, so I'm just presenting some kind of high level results here, but we do still have a lot of um, data that we're kind of looking through in terms of, you know, asking about the types of activities that people were doing. So we asked around a lot of different physical activity categories, such as walking, jogging, swimming, organized sports, um, yoga, a whole range of categories. But in line with our previous project, we also asked about more mundane activities. So childcare, um, playing around the house with children, routine um, home maintenance. Um, so trying to also pick apart the sort of regular type of activities and not just the things that we might class as um, sport or exercise per se. So these, uh, these graphs are showing just the kind of global answer to how much physical how much activity of any kind were you doing during these three different time points. Um, so the pink is the 
recollection of um, what the baseline was, how much were they doing before lockdown. The green is the early phase of lockdown during March to May, and then the yellowy color is um, the present time for the survey, which was June, July. And so what we tended to see is that, you know, among those, so it was a fairly active sample, most reporting either every day or at least a few times a week of some kind of activity. Um, and we saw among those who were already quite active um, of the everydayers a little bit of a bump in, in the early phase that then kind of settled back down. Um, and then equally on the rarely or never side, we saw a bit uh, you know, more people who were saying they were not doing anything and then settling back down towards a kind of middle level here. Um, so we saw a little bit of shift in activity levels, but when we looked um, actually at the individual level, so I looked at um, you know, how many steps up or down this scale did people move? Um, so you can see the, the distribution was fairly normal looking in terms of whether people you know, dramatically shifted or not. So the people down here, the lot less active would have been the people that were up here to start with, the you know, at least a few times a week sort of activity um, that, that, that dropped down to monthly or never. And then the flip side would have been the people that started out at this end and all of a sudden were really very active. Um, so most people were saying they were either about the same or had done a moderate shift in one direction or another. Um, but we did note that there were, when we look at the groups on the end, that initially we had more people reporting that they were a lot less active versus the ones reporting a lot more active. So one question for us in terms of um, uh, thinking about how this might, you know, scale up or inform things at a national level is, um, you know, are the differences there meaningful? If we've got a small but significant number of people who have gone to being a lot less active, what are going to be the public health implications for that potentially down the line? Um, and just to remind you again that we were looking at some of these trends um, by different demographic factors, um, including the economic security question. So this was a statistically significant difference in terms of um, how frequently people were likely to be active um, at the time of the survey um, in comparison to their uh, economic security. So generally, the more economically secure they were, the more likely they were to report frequent activity. In terms of food consumption, we were trying to both get at practices of food consumption, so how people were eating, and also what they were eating. And so we ask a few kind of high level questions around practice. So one thing we thought about was, you know, all of a sudden, if people are at home all the time, is this going to feed nicely into this narrative of, oh, this is all great. We're having lovely family meals now in a way that we don't normally and we're eating more healthily. So we asked that question and more people did report an increase in preparing their food at home more often. And then we also wanted to ask about access, you know, because there, there were certainly concerns of, um, of stockpiling and if that was hitting people differently in different parts of the country. And so unsurprisingly, given that this was um, still relatively early in the scheme of things, um, people were reporting some difficulties in accessing the foods that they wanted in comparison to before lockdown. And we also asked people to fill out some food frequency questions of how much have you had in the last seven days of each of these types of foods. And then we ask a change question, are you eating more, less, or about the same of those types of foods um, now versus before lockdown? And so while the, the picture's a, a bit muddled, so it'll be interesting now to go back and compare to some of that, that data that Stanley presented earlier in terms of um, you know, other data sources for in consumption patterns. What we saw was that um, people were reporting generally a bit more fresh, and, fresh fruit and veg. So really we're kind of comparing the people in red who were saying 
they had more of that thing versus uh, the greens who had less. Um, so slight increase in fresh fruit and veg, um, bit of an increase in the, the biscuits and the processed snacks that became very easy to grab while you're at home all day. Um, a shift in the other direction away from ready meals and takeaways um, in comparison to what people were doing before. But with the ready meals, a lot of people were saying they weren't necessarily eating those in the first place. But of those who did, we saw a decrease in those, a decrease in takeaway meals. Um, slight increase in the fizzy drinks um, and a bit of an increase in the alcoholic drinks. So um, again, we want to work with these kind of localized data to see how they're comparing to the national pictures. Um, but those seem to be somewhat consistent with some of those um, trends that we're seeing from other data sources. Now we asked, um, as part of the survey, in addition to um, the, the structured questions, we also wanted to give, as anthropologists predominantly, you know, a lot of space for people to give more um, open-ended or qualitative answers. So we did prompt uh, people to provide comments in each of these areas. Um, Sabine's been doing some of the analysis with the qualitative comments, so I'm going to hand back over to her at this stage just to highlight a few of the, the trends that, are, that have come out and how they relate to um, some of the statistical data. Yeah, thanks, Caroline. Um, so as we sort of saw already from what we put out in the insight reports, there were um, high levels of anxiety and depression kind of across the board um, as far as health changes go. Uh, but one of the things that came out really quite strongly in the narrative descriptions of people's changing health um, was either a resurgence or worsening of pre-existing conditions, which had either been fairly mild or well-managed um, prior to March 2020. And so this included things like depression and anxiety, um, but also insomnia and then things like eating disorders, gastrointestinal problems, um, and also skin conditions. Um, and so over the next few slides, we'll just have some illustrative quotes um, to, to sh show some of those things. Um, but some of these health changes were offset by a reduction of certain stressors. So some people felt that certain pressures in their lives, maybe for instance, not having to spend so much time um, commuting long distances or doing, you know, working with a stressful environment at work or having, you know, being near anxiety triggers such as being in public with very many people. When those were removed, it would, it would offset some, some of these sorts of things. Um, if we want to hop to the next slide, um, in terms of activity change, um, we did see that once lockdown kicked in, uh, a lot of people did make a really concerted effort to exercise. Um, but then what we see is the sort of mundane physical activity of daily life. Um, I think we had one participant identify it as incidental activity was largely erased. Um, and this is really clear with people who commuted to work in ways that were not just driving from point A to point B. Uh, those like uh, the first quote here who walked the whole way or those who use public transit and walk between stops or transfer trains, so on. Then we also saw people wondering about how to assess whether or not they were more or less active during this time because they might have become active in different ways. Maybe they were no longer moving around town in you know, the ways and with the frequency that they previously did, but suddenly they'd taken up cycling or they were doing online high intensity interval training courses or, or working in the garden or, you know, uh, fathers in particular who you know were working before and then suddenly were you know physically moving around and playing with children um, also weren't quite sure necessarily how to sort of class and uh, and quantify 
this sort of physical activity. And it's something in my life I've been trying to figure out as well. Um, I really started running again during lockdown. So, you know, maybe my running stats on my, you know, my app look really great, but I have a suspicion that overall I am still far less active than I was. And um, even if it looks great, you know, at how much, how much you're running, um, it doesn't necessarily even out. But the point here is something um, of a return to an idea that we started to get at in our previous project on materialities. Um, in that it is very difficult at times to class exactly what people count as exercise and what was sort of other forms of physical activity and then what the public health implications are for that. Uh, so next, we're just gonna take a quick look at the food consumption patterns and provisioning in particular. So the really big thing that jumped out at us is there was a lot more planning and less flexibility in food shopping. This sort of, oh, I'm gonna pop into the shop or I suddenly feel like having this for dinner. And obviously when you, know, you were highly encouraged only to be going out uh, you know, maybe once a day for exercise and to reduce all other trips uh, was, was really uh, massively reduced. So I'll keep this section fairly short because I think that the participants here say it best. Um, but this was something we saw across the board, across all demographics, um, was this the shift to less spontaneous shopping uh, and more planned meals. Uh, and we also saw towards the end and in our second um, survey that there are still some substitutions happening or difficulties in accessing perhaps your exact preferred brand of things, but this idea of staples are no longer really in short supply. Um, and then as Caroline indicated, uh, everybody did cook more at home, um, but then we had some, some differences in terms of who was less economically secure and spending more time cooking at home or where, you know, where there was a potential increase in takeaways and, and ready meals um, may also have to do with the, the kitchen space available. So I think briefly I'll hand it back to Caroline to start wrapping us up and then um, I think we'll have time for just a couple of questions before, before we take our break and then we can circle back to more questions um, at the end of the second half. So just to, um, to wrap up, so we did the follow-up survey about a month after the initial survey. And so this would have been, you know, right at the end of the summer when actually um, in most places, things had really properly eased across England. Although, as I mentioned, you know, we had some, that we had the beginnings of some of the localized outbreaks, for example, in Leicester. Um, so we did a shortened version of the follow-up survey. We had about half of our initial respondents who took the follow-up survey. The only difference demographically is that we had um, an even higher proportion of women. So the, the follow-up survey was about three quarters women. And also we had um, a slight shift upwards in our age range. So while we had a, a, an initial sample that was biased towards the younger ages, um, the mean age did come up um, to be more in the sort of 40s rather than about 30 for the initial survey. Um, but so one thing we wanted just to see, you know, how stable were some of the findings from the previous survey. Again, we saw that very clear trend in age versus reported um, well-being by the Work Edinburgh measure. Um, we asked again about the experiences of different mental health concerns. And here I've compared um, what they reported initially in June, July. And then next to it in the orange is um, the proportion of people that reported of, of survey to respondents. Um, that reported still experiencing it in the month between surveys one and two, 
And then again, for reference, um, those among the survey two sample who had said that this was potentially a somewhat regular occurrence before lockdown. And so still seeing kind of across conditions, perhaps a slight you know, decrease kind of moving back towards what we might consider the kind of baseline levels in terms of regular experience, um, but still somewhat raised across the board in terms of um, in comparison to what would have been usual before lockdown, but seemingly coming down a bit in terms of reported frequency. Um, because we had the well-being scores at two time points, we also looked to see if there was any notable shift up or down during that month. Um, there's a distribution of the change in the well-being scores between the two time points. And so what we saw was a very slight shifting upwards, <laughs> um, but by and large, a fairly normal distribution. Um, but one of the things that we are looking at um, for subsequent analysis is looking at the people in the tails, you know, who reported doing uh, notably better a month later or notably worse a month later and trying to kind of tease out, you know, if there were any particular drivers of what might have, um, you know, impacted people's reported well-being across that period of lockdown easing. And then we did ask the question again um, around in comparison to pre-lockdown, how, um, how active are you? And so again, we're seeing what looks like a normal-ish distribution, um, but possibly still a little bit slanting towards people say they're a bit less active. So whether this at population level would be sort of significant enough, um, you know, to really start seeing longer term impacts from reduced physical activity, who knows, but it's something that, um, you know, we're, we're certainly thinking about from this sample. And in terms of some of the comments that were coming through, um, something that we're thinking about in terms of next steps is thinking about particularly now as um, we in the UK and globally are all going through sort of different cycles of lockdown and restrictions and easing. Um, what are the sort of cyclical patterns that people might be experiencing through that? And so it was interesting to us that, um, you know, some people, even though they were reporting very slightly better in terms of um, mental health scores and slightly less prevalence of, of mental health conditions, um, that some people were also saying, you know, the sense of safety was going with lockdown easing. So there was also potential for increased anxiety because people weren't being as careful about social distancing or because just generally, um, you know, it wasn't as clear that everyone was being as cautious and able to um, reduce the risks. So we saw this uh, in a way almost counterintuitive, you know, it seems like things were getting slightly better at our second survey time point, but some people were reporting that actually the easing off um, potentially you know, brought out new concerns um, as well. And also we had some reflections of, you know, people who had been either shielding or had been labeled as uh, clinically vulnerable, kind of reflecting on how they were kind of thinking about themselves um, a few months on and that they wouldn't have necessarily felt so vulnerable before all of this. And now that lockdown was easing, you know, they were very much kind of carrying that new label of vulnerable with them um, into the next phase. So something we'd very much um, welcome people's thoughts on is um, where next in terms of um, what we do with these data, um, how we dig in a little bit more into some of the, the more detailed data that we have, but also just thinking about um, where, where in terms of policy and public health um, do findings like this sit. Um, so particularly as we're thinking about going into subsequent waves of lockdown, um, what can these kind of data say about, you know, what we might expect to see in um, new demands or stresses in the food supply chain, um, different shifts again in economic security levels, you know, a lot of people were able to kind of 
maintain um, their employment or um, income, either just through continued employment, working at home or through the furlough scheme, is that going to change now that we're basically six months on? Um, and of course, we're going into these new waves um, going into the winter as well. So are we going to see some compounding seasonality effects? Um, so yeah, we'd really appreciate any thoughts in terms of things we might be able to pick up on or develop in terms of the relevance of um, these findings for thinking about what next in policy and public health terms. So with that, I will uh, hand right. over to Stanley for a <laughs> few minutes of transition before a comfort break. Yeah, absolutely, no, fantastic uh, summary. Um, I will open this to the floor um, uh, because uh, for a couple of questions. 